weird. They didn't want to tell anyone yet, because this object was too weird to be believed. It was in the wrong place. No. Weird. Australia. Hi, I'm Stu Buchanan, and you're listening to the New Weird Australia podcast. Born of the long-running New Weird Australia project, which aims to uncover and unpack Australian music from the margins. Now, if you haven't come across New Weird Australia before, there's a huge library to explore through uh, free compilations, artist releases, and of course, a podcast series. You can find it all at newweirdaustralia.com.au. Now, this episode is number 115, and I'm delighted to be talking with Indigenous Australian improviser and experimental vocalist Sonia Hollowell, along with modular synthesist and composer Ben Carey. Now, the new project is called Some Conduit, and it's something very special. Do go and check out their debut release. It's called Track, and as the name suggests, is one single track, a 55-minute piece recorded last year at a live performance at Carriageworks in Sydney. Now, if you like this episode of the podcast, then please do head over to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Every one of those helps someone new to discover the podcast and all the artists that we feature. And if you haven't yet subscribed, I strongly encourage you to do so. We've got some great interviews coming up very soon. In the next episode, number 116, I'm going to be talking with Lawrence Pike about his new record, Prophecy. Right now, though, this is some conduit. So thanks for making the time to have a chat in isolation. I think before we talk about the Some Conduit project, I think I want to get maybe a little bit of a better sense of your individual practice, you know, and just sort of set the scene a little bit. So Sonia, maybe we could start with you. The Some Conduit bio, I think, just describes you as an experimental vocalist. And indeed, you, you lecture, I believe, in experimental vocal practice can you tell us how you came to that area of work and and what that means for you that experimental vocal practice yeah um i started off you know going through the sort of typical classical vocal training and then became exposed to um, contemporary classical music or new music and then um became exposed to really, really free sort of outside the box um, extended technique type of stuff and um, and improvisation and just sort of kept turning left, I guess, <laughs> until I landed where I currently am. 
And, um, and can you remember, you know, what what those particular references were, or or the things that, whether it was kind of artists or, or projects or whatever, that kind of made you turn left at those particular points? I think it's a few things. Um, my dad is a really phenomenal improviser, and so I've always been around him and been exposed to that method of doing things. So there's that. Um, but also during my uni degree. I joined the Splinter Orchestra and started developing um, just my palette, I guess, and developing a real sensitivity and um, sensitive listening practice as well as vocalising practice um, with Splinter. And it became a a context where I could just um, explore, you know, all those sort of different colours that are there in my voice and... um, yeah, emboldened me to continue exploring um, everything that was possible, mm. I guess. Maybe for the benefit of people who don't know Splinter, can you just tell us who they are? Yeah, it's funny when, when I describe who they are, I just sort of rattle off their um, <laughs> bio. It's like Splinter Orchestra is a large-scale el- electroacoustic improvising ensemble um, based in Sydney. And they've been around for a really long time and there's a lot of members of Splinter who have come and gone over the years. It's a very fluid sort of organism. Mm. Um, People from all different practices, um, you know, people who've been through the institution and people who haven't, um, people who are playing the instrument that that they've played for years and other people who are picking up something that's really foreign to them and just pulling it apart and um, seeing what it can do and it sounds like it's i mean it's exactly the kind of environment where you can you're free to experiment and there's there's no such thing as you know uh as a right or wrong way to do things yeah that's true that's true and yet there is definitely um quite a distinct um aesthetic to splinter it is quite i mean it's very generally very sensitive playing which often means that it's collectively quite soft or quite um gentle playing so there yeah it's interesting that there is there is definitely like an aesthetic to Mm. it um but that's been really good for me it's really just sharpened my listening and my sensitivity now ben you describe yourself as a saxophonist composer and technologist um which came first or did they all arrive? did they all arrive at the same time did they all come burst together as one no yeah um yeah look saxophone definitely is my um my first instrument and uh, although i don't actually play saxophone um that much anymore it's still a, like a really core cool part of who i am as a musician so like i i, I grew up um playing classical saxophone actually so not I don't, i'm not from a jazz background um and so kind of i guess similar to to sonia i have a, a kind of a classical training and an interest in in contemporary avant-garde um, music and so the the composer and technologist side of things came much later um, through free improvisation actually um, so being a player someone who's an interpreter um, getting interested in um, in live electronics in a in improvised setting so I started going to um, the now now gigs in in Sydney back in I think 2005 2006 
um, and then went away overseas for a couple of years and started realizing that I wanted to actually make my own music and start improvising with um, electronics in that way. So, so yeah, so I mean, look, those taglines, they seem like quite separate things, but it, 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 it all does stem from um, my, my upbringing as a, as a player, I, I guess. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, now I play the modular synth and that's a big part of what I do and what I do with, um, with this duo, but, um, but yeah, it does come from an improvised background. The, the modular synth there. I think when when reading your sleeve notes, I guess for want of a better word, although sure. no no sleeves per se um, <laughs> for antimatter, your release from uh, from last year, you you talk about the modular synthesis as a way to experience composition as an interactive process, which I thought was really interesting because mm. you lecture in composition and music technology at the Sydney um, Conservatorium. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I guess about as yeah. modular as that as and how modular and composition work together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's an interesting thing because, I mean, before I had worked with the modular synthesizer, I'd been doing a lot of stuff with um, software programming. So, so working with um, a program called Max MSP, which allows you to develop your own software. And I've been super interested in um, generative processes. So basically designing systems that give me as a composer things to work off, to jump off, to be surprised by. Um, and so when I think of the modular synthesizer, it's, it's an instrument because it's the thing that's in front of me that I'm engaging with when I perform. Um, but it's also an environment for composing because um, I, as the person that's actually interacting with it, um, don't have full control over it. And you do need to kind of specify um, kind of global things that you're going to interact with. So that's why I like to think of it as a um, as an interactive way of composing, because instead of thinking about things linearly, or um, or composing gestures in time, you're composing processes um, and setting up things that um, I guess is a, a palette that you then interact with. So that's the way I like to think about it. And in terms of my my teaching work, um, you know, a lot of the, the teaching work I do is um, teaching composition and teaching music tech to to undergraduate um, students, but I do like to talk about this in terms of sound design, um, that, that when you're working with any technology, it's just as useful to be bamboozled by it and not understand what it's doing than to, to actually master the technology. So that's, yeah, kind of where that, that sort of things comes from. It's interesting because the way you described it there is actually if you take one particular kind of glance, again, or one particular angle rather, um, from what Sonia talked about earlier with with splinter you're sort of setting up parameters to experiment within you know like otherwise modular is just chaos without those parameters essentially Um, you know and um so you're both sort of albeit coming from very different spaces um Mm. experimenting within certain not constraints as such but with within certain definitions i guess and 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 certain parameters yeah 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I find that in the duo, in the duo format that, um, you know, like a, 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 we've talked about before the fact that, you know, in order for me to actually have sounds to work with, I have to develop a patch. And Sonny doesn't know what that patch might sound like before I arrive there. But both of us are finding where our boundaries and parameters are on stage. And I think that's a, um, a really interesting space that you know improviser improvisers are, are used to being in in that space but i think you know in in a duo there's this really um nice interactive element to that that conversation between boundaries working out where the parameters are and working off each other to shape them and change them yeah ben you talked about attending no no gigs and sonia i believe that you you work with no no as a as a curator was that the the kind of nexus at which you both met and decided to work together or what was that inflection point where you both sort of decided that this was a good idea to marry modular synthesizer with unfettered vocal did you have the idea before me ben because i remember you saying once possibly around resonant bodies festival time Mm. you said we should we should play together sometime or something (laughs) did you say that yeah, look, I might, I, might, I, I, I might have. You did, right? But yeah, but our, the the gig where we first played together, you invited me. So, you know, look, we, we had worked together before on a, on a couple of projects. One was um, was the Resonant Bodies Festival, um, but I was I was working as a as a sound technician, and and um, and Sonia was doing a, a fantastic live set um, uh, as part of that festival. But also, we worked on the Agatha Goat Snape project at liveworks i can't remember which year it was but uh, rhetorical chorus um with meg meg clune and and sonia was um working in that but i did some sound design as as part of that that project so we'd kind of been around each other's orbit um but there was a gig it was um a series organized by trevor brown um called sicko um and uh sonia called me up and said look um i want to do a uh a performance i'd like to um, perform with you but also i'm thinking about performing with a, a drummer as well we'll see if we can get him involved and the drummer um couldn't be involved so we played together and we did a half an hour set uh, which was just the two of us and that's kind of how, how it all started yeah and that was that was with modular synthesis right yeah yeah, yeah i was playing modular yeah. so sonia what was your thought process in terms of making that beeline for ben to say this, you know, I want to collaborate with you and particularly want to collaborate with the, with the modular. Um, I think I was just ready to start playing with some electronics, just combining my voice with that sort of sound world. And, you know, I, I did recall that Ben had suggested it, you know, a little while beforehand. And so I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity because I've been given free reign to recruit whoever I want for this performance. And it, it worked so well from the from the start. It's just been super easy, I feel. Yeah, I agree. As far as things go. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your approach as an experimental vocalist and, and how that might have shifted or changed or adapted when working with, with modular synthesizer? One of the main things that I was considering when we first started playing together was, and which is, I guess, what I consider when I'm playing with anyone is... Um, what is the potential for oneness and what is the potential for a sense of multiplicity and and differentiation between us, I guess? Where can we become like almost lost in each other's sound world? And, And the voice and the modular synth have the potential to sound very similar 
but also sound very different. And so I'm sort of thinking about the grain of the voice that gives it away as belonging to a human and being conscious about when I want to expose that and when I want to conceal that and try and sort of sound like Ben, I guess. Now, obviously, you you you've both chosen this particular work that that we're talking about here as your first release. So it's it's been recorded and uh, packaged and now available on Bandcamp. Did you go into this performance with the intention of it being a release, or or what was it that sort of made it a candidate for your debut, as it were? As far as I remember, we didn't go into the performance thinking that um, it might be a release, but we've had a habit of bringing the recording gear and recording everything that we do. Um, because Sonia and I don't rehearse, um, we talk a lot about um, musical ideas and, the, and the, the kinds of things that are interesting um, each other um, and, you know, what has happened in previous performances but we don't plan. Um, it just so happened that we had been, because we did a very large um, performance earlier in that year, so this is um, start of 2019 as part of the, the Now Now Festival, so we did a two-hour gig um, of which we thought that there was a lot of gold um, that we wanted to see if we could kind of chunk into a release. And we'd started that process, but left it dormant maybe for six months or so. Um, and then this gig came up and the, the timing of the gig in terms of the, its length being 55 minutes, it being a self-contained play that had an, an arc that many of our performances do, 
it felt much more ripe, I think, as a, as a candidate for, for a release after listening to it and doing a bit of kind of cursory mixing than trying to quite artificially chunk up something that was a longer, more durational um, play. And it's not to say that that process couldn't have worked, but yeah, we were particularly proud of that, that performance and it was in a beautiful space and, um, and there, there was a lot of ex extra things related to that, that performance that made it special. Um, so yeah, that's that's my recollection. Maybe Sonia's got another recollection. recollection. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, you did point to something there that I think anybody um, who's working in improvised music practice in the live space, this question is is relevant for them too. Which is that when you yeah, then when you then translate that to the recorded space and and particularly releasing recorded music. Some artists, you know, very much stick to, to the approach you've just described, which is more of a documentary approach in mm. terms of, you know, documenting live performances, whereas others take quite a radically different approach and, you know, explore all sorts of different techniques in the studio. Have you considered what your future recorded work might look like? I've started thinking about it. Um, we haven't talked about it, um, I don't think, Sonia. Um, no. <laughs> But I, I think, you know, like the, the idea of saying, okay, right, we're going to do a release and planning that out and actually going into a studio, I think might set the boundaries for quite a different process entirely. I can't really speak too much to it because we haven't talked about it, but I, I think they're, they're very different beasts, um, you know, possibly doing shorter things, stitching things together, um, working out how, how we relate with much more tighter constraints, perhaps might be a, a way of thinking about that. But but I think think what's nice about the, the the documentation approach, especially in this case, because the the, the length did seem to fit a um, kind of an, an album length, is that that in an improvised performance, I, I think particularly in this duo, I found in comparison to some of the other things that I've done, whether or not it's solo or in other um, incarnations, is that the the flow of the material and the way that the arc is is shaped is quite important, I think, um, to contain. And so if, if we were to chop up a, um, a live performance, it might feel quite different. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Have you thought about that much, Sonia? We haven't chatted about it. Um, no, I was just going to agree with what you said at the end there in that it's, it's actually really difficult to... Because I, I sort of do often think of plays in terms of the searching and the finding. Yeah. Like, process, a, right? you know, like killer and filler, I guess, but which is <laughs> it's sad. I don't like to think that way about what we do. It's like, no, it's all, it's all special. Um, and, you know, you can't really have the killer without the filler, really, I guess is the point in that if you try and take this gold moment out, often it's, the magic is lost because the magic is in the approach or the... Um, you know the the moving out of if yeah if we were to sort of take out the ch the chunks of gold we'd have to really give serious consideration to how much on either side of it we were allowing in because we need to contextualize it and i think we've come across that actually even even with letting radio stations know what what they would like to play it make, makes us look at the whole play and go where do we start and where do we end? Do we do we let them choose themselves or do we do we say here's a great bit? And even that was, I mean, we agreed this time, which was great. Um, but it's a challenging thing to do, um, yeah. Because you know where something's come from and you know where it's going to in the yeah. larger scheme. Um, I was just going to say the whole concept of um, 
getting attached to your so-called favourite bits and stuff has really, it's been an interesting thing to think about in this process of this release because a lot of what I thought would be people's favourite bits have been and there is one bit in particular that um, seems to be a, there's a general consensus that people seem to really love that bit but then what I really love is being surprised by what I considered to be just sort of a bit of meandering, you know, not particularly like wow factor, um, being someone's favourite bit. I love that. Mm, yeah. I think that's, that's really special. And it's a good thing to, to be mindful of so that we don't fall into this really sort of harsh thinking where we set up this dichotomy of like good and shit because yeah. that's sort of what I'm trying to actually free myself from actually mm. having had that you know the classical background that can be you know not particular quite toxic actually yeah okay. what can end up guiding you in those decisions as to okay what do we select can maybe often be more about assuming what other people will be wowed by so you sort of default back in, for me anyway into th- thinking of in terms of so-called virtuosity. Ooh, that's really, mm. you know, ooh, the virtuosity is strong in that bit. Like mm-hmm. it might wow the people. Or the um, other way around, like, oh, there's this killer virtuosic bit we don't want to give away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no. My definition of that if, of virtuosity has really changed over time. And, you know, I, I see, you know, there's virtuosity in restraint, mm-hmm. um, you know, when choosing to not do anything but that doesn't always strike people as impressive and I think you often have to hear the whole thing in order to get a sense of that of what it takes to actually be restrained there for that long or something listening to the new weird australia podcast and i'm talking with sonia hollowell and ben carey about their new project some conduit now in this next section of the interview we're referencing an article that sonia published recently titled decolonizing the high arts which came out of the 2019 australian music center summit gender equity and diversity in opera you can find a link to the article in the podcast show notes or at newweirdaustralia.com.au Okay, let's get into it. When you talk there about upending this the kind of notion of virtuosity, it does remind me actually of the paper you wrote, Sonia, about decolonizing the high arts. You know, be- oh, cool. because there was a lot in there, I think that that spoke along similar lines to upending definitions and and upending mm-hmm. approaches and the the lens through which which things are viewed. Your approach, you know, which is in part experimental is in part improvised decolonizing classical music is 
potentially part of that mix as well. And yet you're both still having to or working within a, v- a very classical conservative Western construct in terms of, you know, whether it's the con or, th- or through classical training or perhaps, Sonia, through some of the organizations you work with. Those two things are obviously or feel like they're at tension with, with one another. Yeah, I'm just um, at a point where I'm just being very embracing of intersectionality and complexity that often might strike you as being um, contradictory. Often what might seem contradictory can actually be complementary if you just reframe your thinking and just allow yourself to sit with, you know, complexity or ambiguity or whatever. One of the other interesting things in that essay was that idea that some of the solutions for representation, for want of a better word, come through mm. interdisciplinary collaboration. That if, if the institutions within some of the high art are too set in their ways to change, that actually it's, it's only through that interdisciplinary collaboration that not only, but that's one of the main ways that change can come about. We just need to be able to recognise the structures that we're working within. And um, so much is just taken for granted. And I guess when I when I talk about decolonizing, I mean I'm I'm thinking first and foremost about being able to identify, you know, the mark of the institution on myself and things, definitions that I've taken for granted, and giving myself the um, the freedom to be able to question that and to discard it if it doesn't actually if it feels like it's it's actually not based in reality or if it's just one lens someone else's reality perhaps that i've adopted as my own because at some point along the way i've been taught that this is this is the way to see things this is the way to define things this is the way to value this is this is the value system here that you should sort of embrace and it's it's really sort of deep structural work that i'm doing very much on a personal level and it's it's happening sort of artistically as well and i guess that's what i was writing about in that article as well it's just really just stopping to actually take a look at ev- the definitions and all of the baggage, all of the the way that everything is encoded as well and unpacking all of that because so much of that doesn't happen, it's just taken for granted. But if we're actually wanting to evolve or change, it, it requires looking at everything, like the foundation that we're standing on, for example. And you're right, yeah. so, so much of that supposition um, comes from terms that are just agreed and continue to be agreed without interrogation i guess you know this it's in in part and one of those ones i think is i guess the idea of experimental music full stop because experimental music is a largely i guess a kind of western construct you know or it's a particular genre or canon of music um at least in, in a contemporary setting when we talk about experimental music i think that there's a general consensus that it that it falls within that western canon of 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 experimental music and i wonder whether that phrase in and of itself is also 
a little problematic. I know from my own experience, I've sort of promoted New Weird Australia as Australian experimental music, but I look at it through the lens that, that I experience music through, which is a Western lens. So I'm sort of challenging myself and confronting myself to unpack what experimental music means mm. outside of a Western context. And I've had an interest in, you know, I used to do sort of what I would call global music shows because I didn't like the term world music as such, but it was just sort of being able to expose a broader kind of multiplicity of sound from from around the world. But I was exposed to a lot of what we might call folkloric or kind of traditional musics that, that were extraordinarily experimental to my ears. But perhaps with within those artistic communities were not necessarily experimental. I think it's fascinating what you say because, you know, like the term experimental music these days... I think it's become a bit of a catch-all for catching things that are a bit outside of the mainstream. I mean, the, the, the term experimental music, you're right, does have this um, this connotation to, you know, Western avant-garde, um, particularly post-war, not in, you know, 20th century. Um, and the, the, the term experimental music, I think, has gone... Um, it, it, a lot of the things that people would deem as experimental are very, very not <laughs> experimental. They're very yeah, clearly right. defined. There's, there's clear thinking and very, um, I'm not saying that being experimental is not clear thinking, but, you know, there are, there are things that, that are quite apart from that. So I think, I think it's, a, it's a way of, of determining your boundaries and saying, okay, well, this doesn't fit into what you might be able to label as something else, but in, you know, in an effort to do that, this is what humans always do. They, they end up making another label. Right. So it's a, it's a challenging thing. And I think that's really interesting what you say, Stu, about, um, about musics from other cultures and, and musics that aren't our own and um, from our particular lens, viewing them as an other or viewing them as, as experimental um, can actually have a connotation which is um, which is pejorative in in a way, right? So it's it's saying that because I don't understand where you're coming from or the particular structures inherent in your musical output or your artistic world, so therefore there must be some lack of um, rigor or you know this is very Western you know colonialist approach to things, and so it's a it's a super interesting question. Um, I mean, just, just thinking about all of the things that you guys were talking about and, and, and knowing a lot of the things that um, uh, have gone into that, that essay and having chatted to, um, to Sonia, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of synergies here with, you know, the, the, the trying to change our thinking and move away from the, the structures that bind our artistic practice, just talking about artistic practice here. Because I come from a very privileged background in the sense that I've been able to go through a classical training. Um, I have musicians as parents. Um, I went to the conservatorium, all of, all of these kinds of things. Um, and some, someone that, you know, I'm going to misrepresent her work here, but uh, a musician who's gone through similar training that I know up in Brisbane, Hannah, Hannah Reardon-Smith, has done some really interesting work in her, her doctoral studies um, um, looking at the concept of free improvisation um, as a feminist practice. And she gave a paper a couple of years ago um, at a conference which, in which she deemed improvisation as um, the, a radical act of forgetting. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to unpack the essay because there's lots, some, lots of really fascinating things. Um, she cites Donna Haraway and all these really interesting um, writers. But I think even just that, that term of um, going into some kind of a practice um, and going into some kind of a, um, a form of musical uh, or artistic work 
and there needing to be some form of forgetting as part of that process in, in order to understand the structures um, that are around you and to understand where maybe your your musical or artistic impetuses have come from in the first place it does require naming but also kind of deciding what you discard and, and what you what you don't we started the conversation saying you know in terms of my work separating between saxophonist composer and technologist and one of the things that's allowed me to forget or to reappraise the boundaries in my practice has actually been putting down something that is so embedded with my history which is the saxophone mm. um, and looking at practice from other perspectives and in a way i think to analyze that just a smidgen further that's actually quite a privileged thing to be able to do mm. is to say i need to reappraise my practice so therefore i'm going to i, I have the the ability to put down an expensive instrument and pick up another one right mm. but i think that there are parts of of me and my background and my practice that has required me to to do that in in, in order to kind of find a, a new path I'm, I'm rambling a little bit but um mm. yeah it kind of comes to that that point a bit mm. just back to when you were talking about the connotations of this sort of term experimental music i was just aware of the fact that I'm not even particularly familiar with exactly what that means because I did my music degree, which was four years, but I, I wasn't familiar with all these different sort of genres and categories prior to that really. So I haven't got a really sort of clear idea of what that exactly means to other people, like perhaps for yourself, but, um, were you sort of describing the fact that it's become associated with a particular aesthetic, perhaps even more than process? And should it be should it be more defined by process than aesthetic? Is that is that the problem? Yes, and a very kind of strong yes to that. But also, I think you know what is defined as an experimental process will be completely different, whichever yeah. which whichever well, musician you ask across the world so even yeah. just the notion of what does it mean to experiment yeah um, or what isn't experimental i need that question answered what isn't experimental yeah because uh, all, because all music is, is experimental you know and, and it's genesis right because life is experimental <laughs> well that seems like a good quote <laughs> life 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 is experimental so music <laughs> by default all music has to be. it's experimental um, we don't like the idea of that it's just a fact that we have to accept i think um I should let you go, but thank you. It's been fascinating, and I feel like we could probably talk more. Thanks for your time. It's very generous of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. been talking with some conduit sonia hollowell and ben carey you can find their debut release track at some conduit that's some s-u-m-n some conduit.bandcamp.com do also track down some of the video recordings that exist of their live shows i recommend the piece they recorded recently for the art gallery of new south wales 
where they improvise a new piece in response to the very, very large artwork, The Tongue in the Middle of the Port by American artist Mark Bradford. You can find a link to that one and to Sonia's article in the program notes. I'm Stuart Buchanan. Thanks for listening to the New Weird Australia podcast. I'll catch you again next time. Why don't you take your glasses off so we can see you? And then apologise to your neighbours for frightening them. No, 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 no. I'll leave these on. No, I like them. Weird Australia.